So this morning, we're going to look at one of the most famous uh, miracles of Jesus and how he provides, how he provides this amazing meal for thousands of people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And it's been mentioned a few times already that we all come to church with different needs. Everybody has different needs, whether physical, emotional, spiritual, especially. And when we come here, we remember that Jesus, our Lord, is the Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. And we're going to look at this fascinating miracle that Jesus, one of the most fascinating, I think, in my opinion. Uh, he, he feeds at least 5,000 people at once. There's no other miracle like this recorded in Scripture involving so many people. Uh, this is the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts, except his resurrection. And this miracle is unique, my dear friends, because it is a creative miracle. His other miracles are restoring miracles, where he restores people's health. Uh, he restores people's sight. He causes the lame to walk and the deaf to hear and so forth. He even calms the storm, re restoring order in the sea. And there's also transitive miracles, like turning water into wine. But the only other miracle that comes close to this one is his feeding of the 4,000, which is recorded later in Mark chapter 8. But interestingly, Matthew's record of this, of this miracle, he records that the, this 5,000 men present with Jesus and his disciples, they had their families with them, their wives and their children. So clearly, Bible scholars have calculated there could have been easily 15,000, maybe even 20,000 people. That's a massive crowd. It, there's about 7,800 people in Lamar living here. At least double that in one gathering. Talking about a potluck or pot gathering, we worry about feeding 15 to 20 people. And the situation we're looking at, the disciples are anxious about feeding 15 to 20,000 people. That's a massive crowd. This is a, a unique and overwhelming miracle. Powerful, creative. And up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he had never done anything like this to instantaneously create food for thousands of people. Something only the creator of the universe could do. So let's read our passage together. Okay, uh, this is our scripture reading. It's going to be uh, Mark chapter uh, 6. I'll turn there myself. Mark 6, we're going to start reading in verse 30 to 44. I'm reading from the English Standard Version Bible. Beginning in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? 
Go and see. And when he found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of worship now that we can seek your face and your truth and your holy word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you remove all distractions, remove all bitterness or anger, and that we would be able to see uh, the marvelous truths of your word. Lord, we ask for comfort today, for conviction, even for regeneration, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This marvelous passage, again, shows us our glorious, our great provider. And I want us together to focus on our great provider, how he provides for this massive crowd. Okay, carefully looking at this passage, we're going to see that Jesus provides at least four different ways. Four different ways for people who seek after him. That's the key word this morning, provide. Jesus provides for people who seek after him. So here's the context, beloved. Here's the setting of our passage. We have 12 disciples of Jesus, whom Jesus has empowered them with authority over all unclean spirits, all diseases. He commissioned them on their first mission trip in the beginning of this chapter. We see that in in the beginning. And he sent them out on a short-term mission trip, if you will. And they came back to report to Jesus all that they have said and what they have done. And Jesus knows that they're exhausted, that they're tired. And Jesus tells them to go to a remote place, a desolate place, away from all the people that have been following them, and take a rest from their mission trip. And unfortunately, Scripture tells us as they came back to Jesus, hordes of crowds, multitudes of people, had basically been following them closely, And because the apostles, just like Jesus, the apostles were healing every kind of sickness and disease. And so that drew so many crowds. And verse 34, when Jesus saw the crowds, it tells us that Jesus, what? He had compassion for them. Now, if you're using other Bible translations, like the New American Standard or maybe the New King James, other Bible translations will say Jesus felt compassion. Uh, The King James Version Bible says he was moved with compassion for them. And initially, you might not think there's any much of a difference where the ESV says he had compassion. But essentially, the Bible translations that used moved with compassion or felt compassion, they're trying to bring out the meaning of the the Greek word there. It's the word splanknon, okay? It literally means what what it sounds like. (laughs) And I'll tell you in a minute what that is. It basically, it means that Jesus' heart went out to them. Uh, this feeling of compassion wasn't just a cognitive uh, thing for Jesus. He wasn't just analyzing things. He wasn't simply reasoning what was the right thing to do in this situation. The Greek word for compassion, splachnon, it means, it refers to the visceral area, the bowels, the intestines. We all have those. And with this compassion, 
this splanchnon, Jesus felt the pain of his people. Jesus Christ, though fully God, he is also fully man. He is not calculating the needs of men and women. He was passionate, and he felt the pain in his own heart. Now, the Old Testament Hebrew language, they always identify the emotions in the visceral area, or in the bowels, because anxiety and trauma and compassion and all kinds of intense emotions have an effect on our stomach area. It hits us in the gut. In other words, Jesus was hit in the gut when he saw the crowd before him. He felt compassion. He was moved. He had genuine emotion. Just like when he stood over the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19, 41, and tears ran down his face because he knew that they have not repented of their sins. Just like when he stood over the grave of, of Lazarus in John 11, and the tears ran down his cheeks as he wept. And why the tears of compassion? Because Jesus is able, he's able to identify with our pain, with all of our emotion, with all the evil and suffering and death taking place in this world. Are you suffering right now, beloved? Have you come here this morning with a heavy heart? Have you come here weary, with heavy burdens, weighed down with different sorrows? Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us that Jesus, the Messiah, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. According to Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus still has sympathy today. He still has compassion for our weaknesses, compassion for our trials and for our sufferings. He is still hit in the gut for your sufferings and burdens. As long as you're suffering, Jesus will always feel compassion for you. After all, we, all, we are all the body of Christ, and he is the head of the body. And when the body suffers, the head suffers. Jesus feels compassion for your suffering today, and he's doing something about it. Do not forget that. And in our passage in Mark 6, Jesus sees this massive crowd with suffering and needs, and he does something about it. Hungry people, desperate people in this broken world, people like you and me, created in the image of God, living in this broken world of suffering and evil. What did it look like to Jesus? What did all of this look like to Jesus? How did Mark describe it? Looking again at your pages in, in Scripture, verse 34, it says, The people were like sheep without a shepherd. That's how Jesus saw this massive crowd. And sheep without a shepherd are typically what? They're confused. They're lost. They're in clear and present danger. They're defenseless. They're tired, weary, defenseless. They're troubled and anxious, hopeless. They're hungry and thirsty. They want protection and guidance in this broken world. And they're seeking for the one who can provide these things for them. That is why Jesus felt compassion for all these people. And the end of verse 34 tells us, And then he began to teach them many things. What was he teaching them, you might ask? Luke's record in Luke chapter 9 tells us that Jesus was teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God. He was preaching to them the good news of salvation. And then in Matthew's record, in Matthew 14, it tells us that Jesus also healed the sick people in that crowd. And that was the main reason why they were following him. Thousands of sick people with infirmities. He healed all of them. And so Jesus, he provides for all the people's spiritual needs by teaching them things about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel to them. He basically feeds their souls with the word of God. And then he provides for their physical needs as he heals all their infirmities. 
But he doesn't stop there, beloved. We will see that he also meets some more of their physical needs by feeding every single one of them. Jesus covers their spiritual needs, their physical needs, the entire being. So here we see the first provision. <clears throat> the first provision of our Savior is that Jesus provides compassionate care for those who seek him. That's the point of our first, the first point of our sermon. Jesus provides compassionate care for those who seek him. Now let me ask you another question, my dear friends. What do you think was the purpose of this miracle? Sure, it was to provide sustenance, food and nourishment for the body. There was an immediate need for about 15,000, 20,000 people to satisfy their ravenous hunger. And because it was late in the day, and Jesus had been teaching them for a long time, uh, verse 34 and 35 tells us he was teaching them many things. And when it grew late, it grew late when Jesus was teaching them. In other words, he was teaching and preaching to them for such a long time. And beloved, you know what long sermons do, right? Long sermons make people hungry. He experienced that here every Sunday, amen? And what was the purpose of this miracle? Back to the original question. Was it simply just to feed all these hungry people, just to make up for the long sermon that Jesus preached to them? You know, we read that Jesus was teaching them and it grew late in the evening. And maybe Jesus fed the people with his miracle because he wanted to make it up to them. Jesus could have said something, my goodness, where did the time go? Well, he didn't have a watch. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen and children. Let me make it up to you. I didn't realize I just preached to you for three hours. And obviously, Jesus did not say those words. I, I don't see that in my, my Bible translation. Uh, there's definitely something taking place, something greater taking place with this miracle than the miracle itself. And just like all the other miracles that Jesus performed, the miracle revealed something. Miracles are revelatory. They reveal something more than the miracle itself. Jesus did miracles to reveal something about himself. And Jesus did this miracle to show God's compassion, namely that he came to remove suffering and to bring complete restoration. Now let me explain. Let's look a little bit deeper and harder into this. The purpose of Jesus' miracles were to demonstrate the compassion of God and not to embellish his power, not to embellish the miracle or his power. If you carefully study all the miracles that Jesus did in his life, he never performed miracles simply to show off his power. Jesus never performed miracles to show off his power. All of his miracles are revelatory. They reveal something about him and about his message. Each one of them teaches us a spiritual lesson, spiritual truths. And all of these miracles have one great common denominator. One common truth is that they teach us or they demonstrate to us they reveal God's compassion for mankind. Now, please think about this for a moment. If the purpose of the miracles was to simply demonstrate his power to the people who witnessed his miracles, Jesus could have done his, his miracles in a more showy way, in a more embellishing way. He could have done miracles in ways that would have blown people's uh, mind and knocked them out of their seats in their synagogues. And they would say, oh my goodness, this is such a powerful man. I mean, you and I could think of better ways that he could have done his miracles to show off his power than the way he did it. Jesus being God, the Son, he could have made hundreds of restaurants appear in that remote area. Restaurants filled with lavish food for these thousands of people, you name it. Barbecue prime ribs, double porter steakhouse, New York strip steak, 
crispy fried chicken, potatoes, fresh steamed vegetables, all you can eat buffet with the most extravagant food in the world. Stand back, everyone, Jesus would say. Get ready for the buffet of a lifetime. Jesus could have done all that. If the main point of his miracles was to show off his powers, how powerful he was, he could have presented his miracles in a more embellishing way than he did. As God the Son, he has super infinite power. He could have flown around in the sky like the planes and did the smoke writing, I am the Messiah. He could have landed in the Colosseum and flicked all the lions with his finger and defeated all the great gladiators to show how powerful he is. He could have done all of that. And sure, healing people from sickness and disease, that sounds nice, but people want to see absolute power. He could have done all sorts of miracles in an embellishing way, but he did not do that. These miracles of Jesus were not simply proofs of his power, and here's why. He never embellished his power, his miracles to show off his power. Rather, he does them in ways to show us something extremely important. Not just demonstrations of divine power. They are signs of what he came to do. They are signs of his mission. Evidence that he is the Messiah. They tell us what he came to do and how we can be a part of it. The miracles show us he came to deal with suffering. Listen, my dear Christian friends, do you realize that every miracle that Jesus did is a direct attack against suffering? Every miracle of Jesus is an attack on suffering and an attack on evil, which means the miracles that the miracles that Jesus did, they show us that God does not like this broken world any more than we do. And if you read through the first six chapters of Mark, if you do a careful study through all his miracles, what does Jesus always do? He always performed miracles that were a direct assault against suffering and evil. People are suffering from demonic possession. What does he do? He casts out the demons. He heals all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. He heals Peter's uh, mother-in-law from a terrible fever. He heals a leper. He heals a paralytic that is sent down from the roof. He healed a man with a withered hand. He healed a woman with a bleeding problem a lifetime bleeding problem. He raised a little girl from the dead. All of his miracles of healing, casting out demons, were a direct assault on suffering and evil. Even when Jesus calmed the storm, when he was in the boat with his faithless disciples, he removed the chaos and he restored peace. And the disciples were suffering emotionally, weren't they, on the boat? A near-death experience. Master, we're going to die. But Jesus restored peace and order. He removed the storm and thus he removed the suffering. Now think about this. Jesus, he feeds the hungry. He heals the sick. He opens the eyes of the blind. He caused the paralyzed to walk. He resurrected the dead. Or technically he resuscitated the dead. What are we talking about here? All of Jesus' miracles are a direct assault against evil and suffering. Looking at this broken world that we live in, it is just filled with so much suffering and evil and brokenness and people always say to christians why does god allow all this evil and suffering in this world to take place and i think almost every religion has to say i don't know why god does that christians we ourselves too we're not omniscient we can't say i know the answer we know ultimately it's all for his glory christians can say one more thing though it's very important One thing we know is that God hates evil and suffering. 
How do we know that? Look at every miracle that Jesus had done. These miracles were not simply magic tricks to show you how powerful he was. They do show his power. They do show his authority over nature and the demonic realm that he is God the Son. But every miracle was an assault on the destruction and devastation of evil and suffering. On the decay, on injustice, on disease, suffering, and death, and even the demons and the devil himself. In Matthew chapter 11, if you remember that account, John the Baptist, when he was imprisoned by Herod the Tetrarch, and Matthew 11, verse 16, records some details of John's imprisonment. And John the Baptist is there, and he begins to doubt that Jesus is the one, the Messiah. So what does he do? He sends, foolishly, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and he wants his disciples to ask Jesus one question. Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? And listen to what Jesus said. What did Jesus say in response? He says, you tell John that the blind receive sight, that the lepers are cleansed, the lame are walking, that the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Now look at this, what Jesus is saying. The blind see and the lame walk, and the deaf are hearing. That's physical brokenness and suffering being removed. I've come to remove that, Jesus says. The lepers are cleansed. That's spiritual uncleanness, and even their physical uncleanness are removed. They were not allowed to go to the synagogues to worship. They were not allowed to go in the tabernacle. That's spiritual alienation. And Jesus says, I've come against that. Most importantly, the gospel is preached to all of them. And the gospel is a direct attack to sin. To remove the penalty of sin. To remove the power of sin. And to ultimately to remove the presence of sin. Jesus Christ says, I have come to remove all that stuff. God the Lord uh, Jesus Christ says, I do not, I hate all of that stuff. Sin and suffering. I've come to remove it, to do something about it. And if we think that the miracles are just proof of his power, then we're going to think that his miracles are mainly a suspension to natural order. We're going to say something like calming the storm and healing the blind are just suspensions of natural order. But if you believe that his miracles are primarily demonstrations of God's compassion, you will know what Jesus is actually doing. He is not simply suspending the natural order. Rather, he is temporarily removing suffering and restoring order in this world. Again, Jesus did miracles to show God's compassion, namely that he came to remove suffering and to bring complete restoration. Those are the characteristics of the Messiah. All his, his miracles removed suffering, brought complete restoration to the recipients of his miracles. And these miracles are a glimpse of what our future in this world will look like. No suffering, no evil, complete restoration. If you fast forward to Revelation 21, in the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 5, let me read it for you, you don't have to turn there. It tells us this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Here it is. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. No more suffering. For the former things have passed away. And Jesus, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And where does Jesus start when he's making all things new? He starts with people, beloved. Why? Because people are the crown of God's creation. We are created in his image. One by one, the elect, those who are chosen by God, are, they hear and respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. God gives them the repentance and the faith. Faith comes by hearing the word. And then they're transformed into a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Salvation is the greatest miracle, beloved. Wretched sinners like us, transformed into new creatures and the children of God. We are all evidence of God's compassionate mercy. All of Jesus' miracles, especially our salvation, they're giving us a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth described in Revelation. Uh, we are the first, if you will. Christians are the first of the restoration process of God's ultimate plan of this, of this universe. God restores his people first by saving them and conforming them into the image of Christ. And then he will restore this world. He will remove evil and suffering. But first, he is in the process of saving and transforming people. Through all of these miracles, Jesus provides compassionate care for seekers. That's the first characteristic that we see of Jesus' uh, great provision. Secondly, Jesus provides omnipotent care for seekers. Verses 35 to 41. Jesus provides omnipotent care. Look, it was Jesus who was responsible that his disciples and all the thousands of people were in this remote area, in the wilderness. It was Jesus who told the disciples to go to the wilderness to get away from the people and find rest for themselves. And the crowd still found the disciples and followed them. And Jesus knew that the crowds were going to follow the disciples into the wilderness. And I love this because that was not a mistake by Jesus. He deliberately set up the whole situation and Jesus continually shows us in this passage, he is absolutely in control of the situation from beginning to end with thousands of people. Look again at verse 39 and 40. It says, Then Jesus directs all the people to sit down in groups on the grass. And he has them sit down in groups of fifties and hundreds. You see what's happening here? Jesus is absolutely in control. There's no riot. There's no rebellion going on. Jesus is providing his omnipotent care for these people and for his faithless disciples. So the question is, if Jesus is in control, why did he direct his disciples and all these people into a far-off remote place when he could have just sent people right to the town with lots of buffets and restaurants, food ready for them? The answer, this was another test for the disciples. You see, beloved, God purposely tests our faith to make it grow. He brings us out to places that we don't want to go. That's how he tests our faith to make it grow. And Jesus called the people into the wilderness purposefully, knowing that there would be not enough food or any food at all. And looking at their circumstances with faithless eyes, the disciples, they saw what was happening. It was late. Jesus spent too much time teaching these people. It was well past dinner time. The children are fussy, grumpy. The wives, the, the mothers are getting upset. Thousands of people haven't eaten yet. They're starving. And the disciples noticed at least there were at least two major components to their problem. They had a massive crowd of hungry people following them. They wouldn't go away. Secondly, they were in a remote place where food was not readily available. They see the problem. And what was their response, beloved? How would you respond to all that? 
Did the disciples, did their actions demonstrate great faith in the Lord? Did they say, well, we recently, recently saw Jesus calm a violent storm. Uh, Jesus healed every sick person in this crowd here. Uh, he vanquished every demonic possession. He raised people from the dead. He even gave us powers and authority over sickness and disease. I mean, this man is our master. He's taking care of every other problem and situation we've had in the past. He's got a perfect track record. Let's ask him, ask him and see what he's going to do about it. Did they say anything like that? They didn't even ask him anything. They just assumed that Jesus was not able to handle the situation. And you see, the disciples were acting on the basis of human wisdom. That is the attitude we have in our trials when we depend on human wisdom, our own wisdom. But look at verse 36. They tell Jesus, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages so that they could buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus responds with the most ridiculous statement, humanly speaking. It's ridiculous to us, but not to God. Verse 37, you give them something to eat. Jesus was pushing his disciples farther into the test. And with that statement, Jesus is saying, do you know, you still not know who I am? Do you remember seeing all the miracles that I've already done in front of you? Where is your faith? Get it out. And sadly, the disciples, they failed this test. We know because look at the response. It has elements of anger and harsh sarcasm towards Jesus. They rebuke Jesus. Verse 37, Lord, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's not a question of ignorance. That's a sarcastic question, a rhetorical question. Telling Jesus, this is crazy. It's a question of unbelief. Of course, no one had that kind of money. One denarius is worth one day's wages in those days. 200 denarii is about eight months' wages. No one in the right mind carries that amount of money with them in those days. They only had cash. They didn't have credit cards. They didn't, no one just had that kind of money. Even if they did have that money with them, there's no place to purchase that amount of food. They were in a remote area. And the disciples were exhausted. They're filled with frustration, filled with anger, filled with irritation, filled with vexation, filled with sarcasm. They're filled with everything but faith. And they found themselves in this gloomy circumstance. Nevertheless, as the rest of the story plays out, we see that Jesus, he's still in control of this entire situation. And Jesus provides omnipotent care for his seekers. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever gloomy circumstances you're in today seek after him trust in the lord to provide his omnipotent care for you do not respond like the disciples with frustration at the lord setting your mind only on man's ideas and solutions maybe you feel like you're in a remote area now in the desert wilderness if you will in your life let me tell you something beloved god has omnipotent care for you although you're walking in the valley of the shadow of death you should fear no evil. Why? Because he is with you. His rod and his staff comfort you. Some of us may be in the valley of shadow of death right now. Remember, he is with you. He will provide his omnipotent care for you. He is purposefully testing your faith right now to make it grow. And many times we need to go through the valley of the shadow of death to, to get to the green pastures. The green pastures. And by the way, there are so many elements of Psalm 23 in this passage. Do you notice that? 
Psalm 23, uh, about the good shepherd. Jesus being the good shepherd who's in control. You see, in, in Psalm 23, we see here, uh, Jesus led the people into the wilderness, just like the shepherd led his sheep into the valley of the shadow of death, in Psalm 23. Secondly, Jesus caused the people in our passage to sit down on green pastures, just like we read in Psalm 23. He causes me to lie down on green pastures. Thirdly, he takes care of the spiritual needs and their physical needs. Therefore, they lack nothing. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or I will lack nothing. And so we read on in verses 39 and 40. Jesus directed them to have the disciples to have all the people to sit down in groups of fifties and, and hundreds and many people who read this, beloved, they, when they read this today, they had trouble believing that there was any grass in the wilderness. And yes, they're in a remote area in the wilderness, but it's not necessarily a complete desert like the Sahara Desert. It was springtime in Galilee, and many of the hills were perhaps covered green from the rain. And Jesus could have led the disciples and the crabs to an area naturally irrigated by springs. But what is most significant about the green grass is its redemptive historical symbolism. God's people will find rest in the wilderness, and the green grass implies that God's glory can transform the arid places. This was a theme throughout the Old Testament. We saw that in Exodus 16, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for years, and God brought down manna from the sky for them. We see this theme in Ezekiel 34, 24-31, where God tells his people, that he will protect them and provide for them because they are the sheep of his pasture. That's the omnipotent care of God, our Lord. Thirdly, in this miracle, we see how Jesus provides cooperative care for his seekers. Jesus provides compassionate care. He provides omnipotent care. Thirdly, he provides cooperative care for his seekers. And what do I mean by cooperative care? Simply put, God wants to provide for people through you. Now let me explain that. The Gospel of John records details about this miracle that the other ones don't. That's not in Mark. And John tells us in John 6, verse 9, Andrew, one of the disciples there, he says, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And Andrew had been checking out the crowds for any brown baggers. I don't know if you guys use that term in, in uh, Colorado. Brown baggers. I'm from California, and that basically means people who brought their lunch with them when you go to an event. You brown bag your lunch. Well, after inquiring this massive crowd, the best that the disciples could do was find this little boy whose mom packed his lunch. This is a little boy with a little lunch. These loaves of bread in our story are not like the 12 inch loaves that you get from Subway or Panera or at Super Walmart. The word loaves can be translated as bread cakes. And it refers to small, related, small flatbread wafers. They're like little biscuits. And the fish were likely the small fish from the Sea of Galilee, which were intended to be eaten with the bread. So they're small fish for a small boy. So altogether, this food in this brown bag lunch was designed for a small boy. And the disciples come up, Lord, this is all we had. This is all we got. One little meal fit for a boy. Jesus will take that to feed thousands of people. Again, here's the third point of our sermon. Jesus provides cooperative care for his people. He wants to provide for people through you and through me, if you're the children of God. 
Jesus could have made all the food come down from the sky like God did in Exodus 16 for the manna to come down. But Jesus doesn't do it this way this time. This time he uses a little boy with a little lunch to cooperate in his sovereignty and his sovereign care for his people. Now think about this. This young boy had very little, but he gave it all. And he was willing to give it all he had to Christ. But even more, when you see Jesus Christ feed the hungry crowds with these five barley loaves, do you know what we have here? Interestingly enough, the barley loaves are important in this story because barley was the grain, was the bread of the poor people. Barley was the cheapest grain. Barley meant that this little boy was a poor boy himself from a poor family at the bottom of the ladder of the society. And when they presented this poor people's bread to Jesus, Jesus could have said, forget this. I can do better than this barley bread. Stand back, everyone. I'm going to turn these stones into the best heavenly organic gluten-free bread with zero preservatives. A, a taste to die for. He could have did that. He could have turned down the boy's low-class bread, if you will. But Jesus, what does he do? He takes the resources of the poor boy and he multiplies them. And some of you might say, you know, I don't have much to offer for this church. I don't have much to offer. I don't have any skills or talents. I have zero abilities. But the common saying is true, beloved. Your best ability is your availability. Your best ability is your availability. Let me tell you, my dear friends, you don't have to have all the resources and all the skills to do God's kingdom work. Your most important ability is your availability. We need to first make ourselves available in order to do kingdom work. That's what this little boy did. Compared to all those thousands of people, he was a little, little boy with a little lunch. He made himself available. And if you're not available, then the rest of your abilities are useless. This little boy was available for Jesus. Whatever you have, beloved, even if it's little, Give it to the Lord. He will use it. He will multiply it immensely for the good of his kingdom. Even for our missionaries here at, at, at Calvary Baptist Church, you think, I only got $5 to give. Everyone's giving hundreds. Give it to the Lord. He will bless it and multiply it. Jesus, back in our, in our passage here, Jesus even commanded his disciples to distribute the food to the people. Again, another image of cooperative care. Jesus used his 12 disciples. You would think it's a lot. 12 men serving food here. But imagine multiply us to 15,000 people. You got 12 men serving, doing the will of the Lord, cooperating in his provision. And Jesus can do perfectly well without us if he chooses to do so. But he wanted his disciples to be involved in his, in his sovereign provision. He did, not lead, he did not need the little boy's bread. He does not need us. He does not need his disciples to d distribute the bread. Jesus does not need us to do his kingdom work. He could have done all of it ex nihilo, as the scholars say, which means out of nothing, and have all the necessary food appear to these groups of people. But our Lord delights in including us in his kingdom work. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal to us, through us. God wants to provide for people through you and I, beloved. Jesus provides compassionate care, omnipotent care, cooperative care. And last but not least, Jesus provides complete care 
for seekers. He provides complete care. Look at verses 42 to 44 again. I love this verse. I call it the kitchen verse. Verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. I remember when I was a young man, I was sitting at my friend's house, and there were Christians. I wasn't Christian at the time. And I said, what on earth is Mark 64, Miss, Miss Williams? She was like, look it up. So I looked it up when I got home, my parents' Bible, and it says, and they all ate and were satisfied. I'm like, that's a neat verse to have in the kitchen. And I asked my friend about it. I said, is that what it means in your house? Every time you eat in the kitchen, you're satisfied? He's like, no, that's, pointing about, that's talking about the miracle. He was witnessing to me. That's the miracle that Jesus did. We only find satisfaction in Jesus Christ. That stuck with me for years. They all ate and were satisfied. And in verse 43, they took up the 12 baskets, that's the disciples, full of broken pieces of bread and fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now what just happened here? You see, Jesus, did, he just did an absolutely miraculous miracle. And that's a little redundant. He did a powerful miracle here. He just filled the bellies of thousands of people. Thousands of people. And my, my friend and I, uh, my wife and I, we have friends back home in the East Coast that have 12 kids. 12 kids. That's not very common. And every time I saw the dad, I said, hey, Rob, how you, how's the family doing? He said, kids are doing great. They're growing up. Always hungry. They're always hungry. All 12 of them? Yep, always hungry. But they're doing great. And I thought to myself, I cannot imagine what their kitchen looks like at mealtime. And what happened here in this miracle, according to these last verses, what's being described here, yes, it was an absolutely powerful miracle. Yes, it was a meal for every single person. Yes, it filled and satisfied every single person. But notice that it was a precise meal. The disciples gathered up everything that was left over, and it filled how many baskets that were left over? Twelve baskets. And how many disciples were there? Twelve disciples. And not only was this a powerful creative miracle, it was also a precise creative miracle. This meal was exactly what everybody needed to have their bellies filled and satisfied. This miraculous meal was exactly what the apostles, the, the disciples of Christ, needed for themselves as well. There was no shortage. There was no overage. There was no waste. Uh, the precision of this miracle is absolutely stunning. Stunning as the power of this miracle. You see, God's provision is never too little. His provision is always precise. It is always what we need. God's provisions are not only powerful, brother, but they are precise. And so we've seen in this miracle that Jesus, he provides compassionate care for seekers. Number two, Jesus provides omnipotent care for his seekers. He provides cooperative care for seekers where he wants us to be involved in his kingdom work. And number four, Jesus provides complete care for seekers. Jesus is our Jehovah Jireh. He is our great provider. He provides us all that we need. He does it compassionately. He does it sovereignly. He uses his children, his people, to co cooperate with him in his provision. And he provides for us always complete and precise. Why do we complain? Why do we doubt? Why do we get anxious? Let me close with this, beloved. I want us to notice that there are three key words in this passage here. In verse 41, it says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heaven and said a blessing, 
and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And the three key words that we notice here are blessing, broke, and gave. The blessing was the prayer that the Lord said to the Father before he distributed the food. And then the broke, the breaking is the bread. And then the giving, he gave it to the people. Blessing, broke, and gave. Now listen, when we see these words, uh, where do we see these words? In, in action again, later in his life. We see that with greater intensity in no other place than the cross when he is being crucified. For blessing, he first said a prayer to the Lord, a blessing to the Lord, by praying for all the sinners. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Secondly, his body was broken for us. It was crushed on the cross by the Father to completely satisfy the Father's wrath that was upon us. Isaiah 53 says that it it pleased the Father to crush him. Thirdly, Jesus gave his life in place of all who believe in him so that they will have eternal life. Blessing broke and gave. Those three things Jesus did for all who believe in him. Jesus said it later in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. In other words, Jesus is the source of eternal life. Whoever comes to him will never perish, will never die, but have eternal life in him. And when Jesus prayed on the cross and he was broken, that is, he was crushed by the Father, and Jesus gave his life as a substitute for all who repent of their sins and trust in him as Lord and Savior, that was the ultimate miracle that Jesus did by providing the ultimate provision for us is salvation. And people over and over again today we ask, we we hear people ask, what is God doing about all this sin and suffering in the world? And the answer is that is this God has already done something. He sent his son Jesus Christ to first remove the sin problem and then he will remove all the suffering problem. See, the problem with mankind, we want to get rid of all the physical suffering first. But we have a greater need than our physical suffering, beloved. Our greatest need is the sin problem. Everyone needs to be reconciled with God. That is our greatest need. It is not, we don't need more education, more money, more materialism, more possessions, better health. We need to be reconciled with God. And that's why Christ, in his first coming, he came to fix that. He did that through his death on a cross. But people want to get rid of the suffering first. They don't want to deal with the sin problem. They're not, we're not even aware we have a sin problem with God. And so that is the message of the gospel. That is the message we preach here at the Lord's table. It is to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Turn away from your sins, all that dishonors God, and come to Christ for forgiveness. Be reconciled with God. And eventually... You will be saved from all the suffering in this world. You will partake in eternal blessings, spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. He will set you free from the penalty of sin, which is hell. And for those of us who are in Christ, he is setting us free from the power of sin. And one day we will be free from the presence of sin. And this is all done through our great uh, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the, the Jehovah Jireh, our great provider. Amen? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you now for this time uh, that we had in this word and how it teaches us that how you provide for us. Uh, You compassionately have shown your mercy upon us. 
all of our circumstances, uh, each person here, different circumstances, Lord, different sufferings. Uh, we know that all of these trials are in your, under your sovereign care. Forgive us when we doubt, when we become angry or depend on human wisdom. Teach us to be more cooperative in your kingdom work. Use all of our resources, especially the seemingly little ones. Thank you that your provision for us is always complete, always precise, never lacking. We pray, we pray all these things in your mighty and precious name, Jesus. Amen.